the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of God. Well, before we come to this passage, we need to pray. So would you please bow your heads and join me. Father in heaven, we come to you uh, this afternoon. in light of your great promises. Uh, We read in your word that you are uh, the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God, the Ever-Living Father. Uh, You are the one without beginning or end in whom we live and move and have our being. Um, All things are from you. Uh, And so, Father, um, there's nothing that we could come to you Uh, and and lay before you um, that would be too great or too small. Father, we believe that we are joined uh, to brothers and sisters around the world, Um, and so we are able um, to grieve alongside um, of brothers and sisters and indeed all men and women suffering um, under the threat and the continued reality of of war uh, in, in Ukraine, and we continue to pray Uh, as that war reaches almost a year, um, that you would bring it to an end uh, and that you would bring peace. We are able to grieve uh, with brothers and sisters and indeed with women and men and children um, suffering this most recent tragedy that we read about just this morning on the other side of the country uh, as lives were lost among friends and family gathering to celebrate the new year. Lord, we cry out to you, how long? Lord, we we can lift up the needs of our community um, here in Newton uh, and in Wellesley uh, and in all the communities where we make our homes uh, in in greater Boston. Um, You have placed us into neighborhoods and into schools and and companies, um, uh, into businesses, into into homes. 
in families that bleed into other families. Um, and so, Father, we, 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 we carry with us um, many needs and concerns, as well as many things over with to rejoice. Um, Father, that, that command uh, in Scripture that we would rejoice with those who rejoice and weep uh, with those who weep, um, that, maybe more than anything else, points us uh, to our need for you. Father, would you enable us, uh, each of us, to see beyond our own needs and our own concerns? We always confess, uh, or we often confess, that we walk away from neighbors in need wrapped in our own concerns. Father, would you uh, cause our eyes to lift up uh, beyond the horizon of our own concerns, uh, enable us to bear one another's burdens, uh, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, we are in a section of your gospel where Jesus is talking to his disciples about laying their lives down and loving one another uh, as he loved them. We know that none of us uh, can bear one another's sin. Jesus, thank you. Um, that you um, lived the perfect life of obedience that we should have lived, um, but were incapable of, of, of doing. And, and so we're able, uh, by virtue of, of that life, by virtue of being uh, the perfect, fully man, uh, and yet also by virtue of being uh, fully God uh, and able to bear the wrath, wrath of the Father, we thank you that you, uh, alone uh, are our mediator and our atoning sacrifice. Um, the Apostle Paul says that you died uh, for our sins according to the Scriptures and were raised also according to the Scriptures. Um, Lord Jesus, we pray uh, that you would enable us uh, to participate in that new life to which you were raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we thank you for the, the promises that we see even here in our passage and that we're going to continue to see uh, as we look at these words that Jesus spoke uh, to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Um, there's much here to be thankful for, and, and in some way there's nothing else that we could be more thankful for than simply for you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, whose glory is on display Throughout this passage, help us, we pray, to see it. Um, help us to see uh, your glory as you have revealed it uh, to the world in your Son. Help us, we pray. Open the eyes of our hearts and our ears so that we can hear what you would say to us. I pray, as always, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are continuing our study uh, in the Gospel of John. Um, you heard the passage read at the end of uh, chapter 15 and the very beginning of chapter 16. Um, let me remind you that, that what we're looking at here uh, is the continuation of a conversation um, that we started looking at last spring that began in, in chapter 13 and that all takes place uh, on this night that Jesus was betrayed. From, from chapter 13 uh, through chapter 17, we're going to be hearing the words uh, that Jesus felt that he needed to say uh, on that last night after that last meal. 
Um, the first verse of that section of Scripture uh, reads like this. This is John 13, chapter, uh, 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, I, I want to remind you of that because we are in some hard sections of Scripture. Um, we are in sections of Scripture that I think are intended uh, to be convicting and to be challenging. Um, and, and, and I think Brad, last week, I would say it last week, there, there are almost things uh, that, that we standing up here wonder, can I really say that? Can I preach that? Uh, even though it's just it's the words here on the page, it's God's word. Um, we need to be reminded that even as Jesus is saying hard things to us that, that convict us, um, that show us more fully our need for him, and that, and that really call into question our capacity to hope, that he is able to change us, that he is able to be faithful to his promises to complete in us the work that he's begun. Um, we need to remember that he is loving us in these words. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With all of these words, and then, of course, with what he next did in setting his face firmly toward the cross. So we're going to take a look uh, at this passage. Again, last week, um, in the middle of chapter 15, well, back up, the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus um, told his disciples that they needed to abide in him. He's the vine, they're the branches. We abide in him in the sense that we draw our life only uh, from, from him. Um, he then gave them a commandment, right? And it mirrored the new commandment that he had given back in chapter 13. Um, all, the, all through this, script, this, this section, Jesus uh, there's sort of an elliptical shape to it where Jesus will say the same thing multiple times and kind of deepen the meaning for us as he goes. Um, he gives them this commandment to love one another. Um, and specifically, uh, he says, greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life uh, for his friends. And if you remember, um, he said, I have chosen you, I have appointed you. And Bradley pointed out that when he says, I have appointed you, the word he uses there, he, he says, I have laid you down. He challenges us to love one another to the degree that we are laying down our lives for each other. And he says, I am the one who have laid you down uh, for that purpose. Um, and that was a challenge. And it was a challenge for me. It's a challenge for all of us. What is it that we can point to um, as a body in this church where we would say we are laying down our lives for one another, where we could say that Jesus has laid us down uh, in ways that are sacrificial uh, and, that, and that cost something, but which participate in his glory? Um, this week, if anything, he raises the bar even more so. Um, because here, uh, he talks about facing persecution, facing hatred 
uh, from the world. If you just read our passage, uh, starting at, at chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you just read this passage without any context at all, you know, where our mind usually goes is, you know, we're, we're talking about politics here. You know, we're talking about the world hates us um, for our political views, right? For our, our disagreements um, over beliefs. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that that's not in this passage. But I think it's significant that Jesus says this when he says it, right? He, he does not just say this uh, at a random moment. He has just challenged us. He has just said, I want you to love one another. I want you to lay down your lives for one another. That, apparently, is what's going to draw the world's hatred. Um, in some ways, this is just going to raise the bar, right? It's going, it's going to say not only are we laying down our lives for each other, but are we doing so in a way that does not make sense to the world and that even meets with resistance uh, from the world? Um, and our challenge, of course, is, is going to be to see that not only is Jesus giving us, if anything, an even greater challenge, but he's also giving us an even greater hope, even greater encouragement, even greater promises uh, to support that challenge. Um, what we're seeing here um, is evidence of what theologians have referred to as the antithesis, right? So on the one hand, we just did an entire sermon series on being a blessing to the nations, right? How God's people are called to be blessings to the nations, about how God has called us to be uh, in the world in order to bless it, not of the world, but uh, to be very much uh, blessing uh, the world. But that does not get rid of the fact that there is this conflict, that there is this antithesis that exists between the ways of God and the ways of the world. Uh, that there is a hatred uh, of the world uh, directed against God. Um, Augustine talked about this uh, in his ginormous work, The City of God, right? Um, he said, look, there have always been these two cities. Uh, there's the city of God, which is organized around the love of God, and then there's the city of man, which is organized around love of self. And those two loves conflict with each other. Uh, and conflict in um, dramatic um, ways uh, that we will feel that if we align ourselves with the city of God, um, there will be a discomfort uh, in, in, in the city of man. That again points to the challenge that we're going to face here. Is there any way in which I am laying down my life for my brothers and sisters? Is there any way in which I am loving other people in a way that causes me discomfort in the world? That's kind of the question uh, that Jesus is putting to us. So let's take a look at what he actually says. So the first thing that he says um, is that um, if the world hates us, we need to remember, we need to know that it hated him first, right? Um, so Jesus, in some sense, is... Uh, the model. He's the one that goes before us in, in drawing uh, the hatred uh, of the world um, because of uh, the love that he has um, uh, for it, for us. Um, this is a theme that goes all the way back to chapter 1, right? 
Um, back in chapter 1, we read, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then it's even more explicit in, in chapter 3, right? That conversation that he had uh, in the dark of night with Nicodemus, um, where, referring to the image of light again, he said, here's the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And, and, and you remember that that word there where he says this is the judgment, um, the, the, the word that's there is literally this is the crisis, right? This is, this is the event that exposes what has always been true. This is the event that shows exactly where the world stands with respect to God, that, that finally when his light, when his glory is most fully revealed, it is rejected, right? That's the, that's the judgment. And Jesus says here, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Once again, he's, he's repeating something that he's already said. He said the same thing um, back in, in chapter 13. And we actually get some indication of what it looks like for um, sacrificial uh, laying your life down kind of love uh, to meet with resistance there in chapter 13. Because remember what he did next, right? He went to wash the disciples' feet. How did they react to that, right? Initially... They were scandalized. They said, what are you doing? Um, this is completely inappropriate. Now, Peter was very quick, uh, to his credit, when Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no, no, no part in me. Peter says, well, in that case, wash all of me, not just my feet, but my, my head also. Um, but initially, even the disciples uh, were scandalized and shocked by the nature of what it looks like uh, for someone to lay their life down uh, sacrificially, right, in a way that the world does not, not just the world doesn't expect, but it just doesn't make sense um, in the world. Jesus is clear that the hatred of the world um, has not been directed at him because of any lack of clarity on his part about who he is, right? On the contrary, it's precisely because of what he has said. It's precisely because um, he has been very clear um, that he's revealing the Father, that he's sent by the Father, that to see him is to see the Father. And so he says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. All through the, the Gospels, as Jesus has been speaking, he's been meeting with resistance. Uh, he's been saying hard things that have been driving people away. I think we get one hint as to the nature of this challenge that's before us when we ask ourselves, why is it that these disciples have stayed as long as they have? Peter said it back in, in chapter 6. Remember, Jesus said, 
are you going to go away as well? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. He's expressing a dependence there um, on Jesus. I think a question to ask ourselves, if, if, if we ask ourselves, are we laying down our lives for each other? And are we even doing so in a way that causes us some degree of discomfort in the world, that even draws the hatred, that draws resistance, that draws shock uh, from our friends and neighbors? If the answer to those questions is no, um, and I think for me, I would say most of the time, the answers to those questions are no. Um, It's pretty easy for me to be pretty comfortable um, in this world. Uh, to be pretty well regarded, right? And I like that. I like being liked. I like being well regarded. But if we ask ourselves why, might it be because at the end of the day, we couldn't really say what Peter says there. He says, where else are we going to go? Do you and I have somewhere else to go? Do, do, do you and I have other things that we can cling to, draw from, that delude us into thinking that we're not as dependent on Jesus as we really are. Remember, Jesus said we have to abide in him. Um, It seems to me that we haven't really left that question behind. If If we find ourselves not laying down our lives, if we find ourselves easily comfortable uh, in this world, maybe the real root question is, where are we abiding? Where is it that we are drawing our life? Jesus says, all these things they're going to do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. Remember, he has said before that to the extent that we love one another, that proves that we're his disciples, and that brings glory to his Father, right? And, and that, that chain, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a big part of Jesus' mission. He is, he is seeking to bring glory to the Father. Later, he's going to talk about he's sending the Spirit in order to point us to Jesus, bringing glory to the Father. There's this, there's this circle, right? Um, here, Jesus is basically saying um, that the hatred that's directed at us is grounded in that, same, in that same dynamic. They hate us. If we're loving one another, proving that we're his disciples and giving glory to the Father, they're going to hate us because they hated him because they hated the way in which he brought glory uh, to his father. They hated the way that he laid down his life. I want to take just a couple minutes to try to drill down a little bit on this question of why would it be the case that laying down our lives for each other, loving one another in that way, like why is it that that would draw the hatred of the world? Why, why is it that the city of God and the city of man are so opposed uh, to each other? Um, one commentator that I read this week said, self-assertion, sort of characterizing the way of the world here, self-assertion hates self-denial. 
That kind of makes sense, but it doesn't quite answer the question. Why? Why does self-assertion hate self-denial? Why is it the case? This, this is on the, the front of your, your order of service. The quote that I put there is just from Proverbs 29. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Why do the wicked hate the good, to put it as simply as possible? Why is it that the work of Christ, the work of Jesus, the work of his spirit in a human life that would cause us to lay our lives down, to love one another, to sacrifice, why would that be the aroma of life to some, but the aroma of death to others? That's the way Paul puts it. Think with me about three very practical ways that we might lay our lives down for one another. Think with me about what would it look like for us to lay our lives down with regard to our time, with regard to our money, and with regard to our bodies. Okay? So, about, I forget how many months ago, a couple months ago, uh, a very uh, prominent uh, entrepreneur took over a very prominent company uh, and announced, uh, I think, uh, on the platform owned by that company, on, on Twitter, I believe he said, uh, as of Monday, all of you who work here at Twitter shouldn't report for work unless you're prepared to be, quote, very hardcore, right? Um, and, and, and a lot of people did not report to work on Monday. Um, now, that was a bit of a spectacle, right, uh, when he said that. But here's the thing. I think that all Mr. Musk did when he said, don't show up for work unless you're prepared to be very hardcore, I think all he did was have the audacity and temerity to say out loud what pretty much every company that you guys work for is quietly saying in unspoken ways all the time, right? Like at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, your work expects your time belongs to them, right? Don't bother showing up here um, if you're going to disagree with that. If, if, you, if you disagree that when push comes to shove, when profits are on the line, when, when something really has to get out the door, your time belongs to them. What is going to happen if you push back against that? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't take really demanding jobs. Um, there are a lot of very important uh, vocations. I think God wants his people in all vocations, right, spread out you know, across our economy, our, our, our city, our nation. Um, some of them are going to be very demanding, right? I'm not saying that Christians should not be in those jobs. But what about the attitude towards our time? Does our time belong to our company? Or take a step back, does my time belong to me, right? Am I the one who decides what to do with my time? What would it mean for me to try to serve God in a very demanding job, but to do it under his lordship? Uh, to do it in such a way that acknowledges that all time is his, uh, and that I receive time as a gift. Um, the fact that we are gathered here right now on, on Sunday, the fact that 
We talk about this day as a day set aside. Um, that right there might be one of the more countercultural things that we do. Um, and, I, and I think we all know how hard it is uh, to do that and how imperfectly we do it because it's that hard. This is something that could ultimately meet with resistance, with pushback, uh, with hatred uh, from the world. What about our money? Um, I don't know why, but what came to mind when I thought about um, using our money uh, in a way that would draw the hatred of the world, what came to mind somehow was that scene in Mary Poppins, right? The, the original, like the first Mary Poppins, when, when the boy, John, I think, you know, he's got his tuppence, which I think is an abbreviation for two pence. They could say two pence. I don't know why they got to say tuppence. Um, but he's got, he's got that, right? And someone suggests he put it in the bank, and he says, I don't want to put it in the bank, and it starts a bank run because um, this little boy has expressed a lack of confidence uh, in, the, in the bank. I don't know why that, that comes to mind. Um, but there is a way in which the world expects us to use our money. What happens if we start to use it really sacrificially? What happens if we start to give um, in ways that the world looks at and says, that's just irresponsible? Um, that's just profligate. Why are you giving to them? They haven't earned your trust. If anything, they've lost your trust. Why would you be giving to them? Why would you be supporting them? Again, it's not to say that Christians can't be wealthy, but what does it mean for us to have wealth, to earn money, to use money under the lordship of Christ? What does it mean for us to lay our lives down for one another with our money, um, even when it doesn't make sense uh, watching world? What does it mean for us to do this with regard to our bodies? This is the place where I think there, there is an almost immediate intersection um, with what first comes to mind when you read this passage with, with political views, right? What does it mean for us to say, the Bible speaks of a vision of sexuality which is good and which is beautiful, and yet which lives within constraints that says that sex is intended to live within marriage between a man and a woman. We know that that is going to draw hatred. Um, and I think the more personally sacrificial that is, the more hatred it will draw. I'm thinking of brothers and sisters of mine um, who would say that they experience same-sex attraction, but who also say that what God says in his word is good and is beautiful, and they're going to stick to that. And the hatred that they receive, the direct hatred, um, the letters, the emails, the calls that they get can be shocking. Um, it, is, it is sacrificial uh, to be willing to lay down their lives, um, their desires, for the sake of what God says in his, in his word. Um, historians have pointed out that early Christians 
um, stood out in some of these exact ways. One of the, one of the early documents we have um, written by a pagan describes Christians as being prodigal, in other words, um, prodigal with their money, right, spending it um, profligately, uh, being overly generous with their money, prodigal with their money, but stingy with their beds, stingy with their bodies, right? The exact opposite of what the culture expected. Um, and this stood out, and not always in a good way, um, sometimes in ways that drew hatred, that drew condemnation, that drew persecution. Um, sometimes sacrificial lives like this can be an implicit condemnation of the world. And so, again, this, this question is raising uh, a challenge for us. Um, do we see anything like this in our own lives? Is there any place where I am loving my brothers and sisters, I am laying down my life in practical ways and in ways which result in hatred from the world, in discomfort? I mean, this passage implies that we shouldn't be concerned when the world hates us. We should be a little bit concerned when there's no sign of that whatsoever, when we just fit in, when we just look exactly like the world. Jesus has two things to say at the end of this passage. Um, the first is that he tells us all of this so that we won't fall away. Right? Literally what he says uh, in verse 1 of chapter 6, I have said all these things to you to keep you from stumbling. Right? Stumbling over the stumbling stone. It's that word scandal on. Scandal, right? I have said all this so that you won't stumble. You won't fall away. I mean, on the one hand, he just doesn't want them to be surprised when persecution is coming. Right? Aquinas in his commentary in this passage just simply says, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Simple as that. But... At the same time, the implication here is that following Jesus is going to imply a radical change in our lives that's actually going to stand out, that's going to draw the world's notice, that's going to draw the world's hatred. And Jesus' um, view seems to be that that hatred is going to persist, um, that it's going to be unrelenting. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a concern um, that we would fall away. And so I think one challenge for us uh, as a church here in Newton, you know, we come to hard passages like this, and sometimes we're in a hard passage for one week or for two weeks, right? And for those couple of weeks, we're wrestling with something, but then we move on, right? And we, and we, and we stop grappling with the challenge. We stop praying through it. Um, if the hatred of the world is going to be unrelenting, then our grappling with this has to be unrelenting also. Um, we need to stick here. Um, we have to keep praying about this, even as the, the, the preaching moves on. And actually, thankfully, um, Jesus is going to stay in kind of this um, topic and these sorts of ideas for a while as he continues loving us to the end, right? Um, but even as we move on, this needs to be shaping the way that we think about it, what it means for us to be a church, um, the way that we pray uh, together. Um, keeps coming back to that root question, where, where are we abiding as a people? The last thing that I want to point out that Jesus says, though, if he's raised the bar on the challenge, then he better be raising the bar on the hope also, right? He better be giving us even more encouragement. Last week, 
we talked, um, as we always do, about how looking and seeing how Jesus loved us, how he laid his life down for us in a way that's utterly unique uh, and has a power that is unmatched by anything that you and I will do, um, that gives us great hope. That gives us uh, great encouragement uh, to know that God loved us that much and that um, in the death of Jesus Christ, our sin can be put to death. And in his resurrection, we can be raised with him to new life by faith. That is great encouragement. Here, Jesus actually goes even beyond that. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen after that, after the resurrection. I'm going to send you someone to help you. He has said this before in this passage. Uh, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm sending you the Spirit. I'm sending you the Helper. He's about to go into much more detail about this. That's, that's next week. Here he says, When the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So two things. One, as we bear witness to Christ, we need to remember um, that the primary actor is actually the Spirit of God. The way Jesus talks about this here is it's primarily the Spirit of God that's bearing witness. And we're being taken up into that. Um, Leslie Newbegin said about this, the words, the works, and above all, the sufferings of the community will be the means by which the witness is born, but the actual agent will be the Spirit, who, because he's the Spirit of the Father, is the Spirit of truth. But the other thing for us to know is that even as the Spirit is bearing witness to the world, he can bear witness with us as well. In chapter 14, Jesus said, the Spirit, when he comes, is going to remind you of everything that I said. The Spirit bears witness with us as well. The Spirit reminds us uh, of these truths. I think to the extent that we have an anemic view of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, um, we're going to have an anemic view of the change that abiding in Christ brings about. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit growing up in us. And I want to remind you that if you look at those fruit, if you look at the call to lay your life down in a way that is sacrificial and costly and even that draws hatred from the world, if you look at that and you say, I just can't do it, um, the question would be, well, then can you pray? Um, and we always say, if you can't pray, can you ask someone to pray for you? And here I would just add to that, that among those that we are promised will pray for us is, again, the Spirit himself. Romans 8 says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That should be a great encouragement to us. One final encouragement, um, just as uh, the, the power of the Spirit to work this kind of change um, in, in those that you would think are the last, uh, who, whoever would be changed in this way. Read uh, chapter 16, verse 2. It says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I can't think of anybody that those words better describe than the one who wrote those words in Romans 8, right? Paul, 
or as he was known then, Saul of Tarsus. It's exactly who he was. He was putting them out of the synagogues. He was persecuting the church, and he thought that he was serving God uh, in the process until Jesus showed up and asked him, not why are you persecuting the church, but why are you persecuting me? And the Spirit worked in Saul's life. If Saul can be changed, the one who called himself the chief of sinners, um, then there's encouragement for us as well. Um, we're going to keep looking at these challenges and thinking through them and praying through them, but let's not ever do that without rem remind reminding ourselves of the one to whom and in whom we pray, the Spirit of God himself. Let's do that now. <laughs>